This is section four of What is Man and Other Essays by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. What is Man? Section four. Training. Young man. You keep using that word, training. By it, do you particularly mean old man? Study, instruction, lectures, sermons. That is part of it, but not a large part. I mean all the outside influences. There are a million of them. From the cradle to the grave, during all his waking hours, the human being is under training. In the very first rank of his trainers stands association. It is his human environment which influences his mind and his feelings, furnishes him his ideals, and sets him on his road and keeps him in it. If he leave that road, he will find himself shunned by the people whom he most loves and esteems, and whose approval he most values. He is a chameleon. By the law of his nature he takes the color of his place of resort. The influences about him create his preferences, his aversions, his politics, his tastes, his morals, his religion he creates none of these things for himself he thinks he does but that is because he has not examined into the matter you have seen presbyterians y m many o m how did they happen to be presbyterians and not congregationalists and why were the congregationalists not baptists and the baptists roman catholics and the roman catholics buddhists and the buddhists quakers and the Quakers Episcopalians, and the Episcopalians Millerites, and the Millerites Hindus, and the Hindus Atheists, and the Atheists Spiritualists, and the Spiritualists Agnostics, and the Agnostics Methodists, and the Methodists Confucians, and the Confucians Unitarians, and the Unitarians Mohammedans, and the Mohammedans Salvation Warriors, and the Salvation Warriors Zoroastrians, and the Zoroastrians Christian Scientists, and the Christian scientists, Mormons, and so on. Y.M. You may answer your question yourself. O.M. That list of sects is not a record of studies, searchings, seekings after light. It mainly, and sarcastically, indicates what association can do. If you know a man's nationality, you can come within a split hair of guessing the complexion of his religion. English, Protestant. American, ditto. Spaniard, Frenchman, Irishman, Italian, South American, Austrian, Roman Catholic, Russian, Greek Catholic, Turk, Mohammedan, and so on. And when you know the man's religious complexion, you know what sort of religious books he reads when he wants some more light, and what sort of books he avoids, lest by accident he get more light than he wants. In America, if you know which party collar a voter wears, you know what his associations are, and how he came by his politics, and which breed of newspaper he reads to get light, and which breed he diligently avoids, and which breed of mass meetings he attends in order to broaden his political knowledge, and which breed of mass meetings he doesn't attend, except to refute its doctrines with brickbats. We are always hearing of people who are around seeking after truth. I have never seen a permanent specimen. I think he has never lived. 
but i have seen several entirely sincere people who thought they were permanent seekers after truth they sought diligently persistently carefully cautiously profoundly with perfect honesty and nicely adjusted judgment until they believed that without doubt or question they had found the truth that was the end of the search the man spent the rest of his life hunting up shingles wherewith to protect his truth from the weather if he was seeking after political truth he found it in one or another of the hundred political gospels which govern men in the earth if he was seeking after the only true religion he found it in one or another of the three thousand that are on the market in any case when he found the truth he sought no further but from that day forth with his soldering iron in one hand and his bludgeon in the other he tinkered its leaks and reasoned with objectors there have been innumerable temporary seekers after truth have you ever heard of a permanent one in the very nature of man such a person is impossible however to drop back to the text training all training is one form or another of outside influence and association is the largest part of it a man is never anything but what his outside influences have made him they train him downward or they train him upward but they train him they are at work upon him all the time Y.M. then if he happen by the accidents of life to be evilly placed there is no help for him according to your notions he must train downward O.M. no help for him no help for this chameleon it is a mistake it is in his chameleonship that his greatest good fortune lies he has only to change his habitat his associations but the impulse to do it must come from the outside he cannot originate it himself with that purpose in view sometimes a very small and incidental thing can furnish him the initiatory impulse and start him on a new road with a new ideal the chance remark of a sweetheart i hear that you are a coward may water a seed that shall sprout and bloom and flourish and end in producing a surprising fruitage in the fields of war the history of man is full of such accidents the accident of a broken leg brought a profane and ribald soldier under religious influences and furnished him a new ideal from that accident sprang the order of the jesuits and it has been shaking thrones changing policies and doing other tremendous work for two hundred years and will go on the chance reading of a book or of a paragraph in a newspaper can start a man on a new track and make him renounce his old associations and seek new ones that are in sympathy with his new ideal and the result for that man can be an entire change of his way of life y m are you hinting at a scheme of procedure o m not a new one an old one old as mankind y m what is it o m merely the laying of traps for people traps baited with initiatory impulses toward high ideals it is what the tract distributor does it is what the missionary does it is what governments ought to do y m don't they o m in one way they do in another they don't they separate the smallpox patients from the healthy people but in dealing with crime they put the healthy into the pest-house along with the sick 
that is to say they put the beginners in with the confirmed criminals this would be well if man were naturally inclined to good but he isn't and so association makes the beginners worse than they were when they went into captivity it is putting a very severe punishment upon the comparatively innocent at times they hang a man which is a trifling punishment this breaks the hearts of his family which is a heavy one they comfortably jail and feed a wife-beater and leave his innocent wife and children to starve y m do you believe in the doctrine that man is equipped with an intuitive perception of good and evil o m adam hadn't it y m but has man acquired it since o m no i think he has no intuitions of any kind he gets all his ideas all his impressions from the outside i keep repeating this in the hope that i may so impress it upon you that you will be interested to observe and examine for yourself and see whether it is true or false y m where did you get your own aggravating notions o m from the outside i did not invent them they are gathered from a thousand unknown sources mainly unconsciously gathered y m don't you believe that god could make an inherently honest man o m yes i know he could i also know that he never did make one y m a wiser observer than you has recorded the fact that an honest man's the noblest work of god o m he didn't record a fact he recorded a falsity it is windy and sounds well but it is not true god makes a man with honest and dishonest possibilities in him and stops there the man's associations develop the possibilities the one set or the other the result is accordingly an honest man or a dishonest man y m and the honest one is not entitled to o m praise no how often must i tell you that he is not the architect of his honesty y m now then i will ask you where there is any sense in training people to lead virtuous lives what is gained by it o m the man himself gets large advantages out of it and that is the main thing to him he is not a peril to his neighbors he is not a damage to them and so they get an advantage out of his virtues that is the main thing to them it can make this life comparatively comfortable to the parties concerned the neglect of this training can make this life a constant peril and distress to the parties concerned y m you have said that training is everything that training is the man himself for it makes him what he is o m i said training and another thing let that other thing pass for the moment what were you going to say y m we have an old servant she has been with us twenty-two years her service used to be faultless but now she has become very forgetful we are all fond of her we all recognize that she cannot help the infirmity which age has brought her the rest of the family do not scold her for her reminiscences but at times i do i can't seem to control myself don't i try i do try now then when i was ready to dress this morning no clean clothes had been put out i lost my temper i lose it easiest and quickest in the early morning i rang and immediately began to warm myself not to show temper and to be careful and speak gently i safeguarded myself most carefully i even chose the very words i would use 
you've forgotten the clean clothes jane when she appeared in the door i opened my mouth to say that phrase and out of it moved by an instant surge of passion which i was not expecting and hadn't time to put under control came the hot rebuke you've forgotten them again you say a man always does the thing which will best please his interior master whence came the impulse to make careful preparation to save the girl the humiliation of a rebuke did that come from the master who is always primarily concerned about himself O.M. unquestionably there is no other source for any impulse secondarily you made preparation to save the girl but primarily its object was to save yourself by contenting the master y.m how do you mean o.m has any member of the family ever implored you to watch your temper and not fly out at the girl y.m yes my mother o.m you love her y.m oh more than that o.m you would always do anything in your power to please her y.m it is a delight to me to do anything to please her O.M. Why? You would do it for pay, solely for profit. What profit would you expect and certainly receive from the investment? Y.M. Personally? None. To please her is enough. O.M. It appears, then, that your object, primarily, wasn't to save the girl, a humiliation, but to please your mother. It also appears that to please your mother gives you a strong pleasure. Is not that the profit which you get out of the investment? Isn't that the real profit, and first profit? Y.M. Oh, well, uh, go on. O.M. In all transactions the interior master looks to it that you get the first profit, otherwise there is no transaction. Y.M. Well, then, if I was so anxious to get that profit and so intent upon it, why did i throw it away by losing my temper o m in order to get another profit which suddenly superseded it in value y m where was it o m ambushed behind your born temperament and waiting for a chance your native warm temper suddenly jumped to the front and for the moment its influence was more powerful than your mother's and abolished it in that instance you were eager to flash out a hot rebuke and enjoy it you did enjoy it didn't you why am for for a quarter of a second yes i did o m very well it is as i have said the thing which will give you the most pleasure the most satisfaction in any moment or fraction of a moment is the thing you will always do you must content the master's latest whim whatever it may be why am but when the tears came into the old servant's eyes i could have cut my hand off for what i had done o m right you had humiliated yourself you see you had given yourself pain nothing is of first importance to a man except results which damage him or profit him all the rest is secondary your master was displeased with you although you had obeyed him he required a prompt repentance you obeyed again you had to there is never any escape from his commands he is a hard master and fickle he changes his mind in the fraction of a second but you must be ready to obey and you will obey always if he requires repentance to content him 
you will always furnish it. He must be nursed, petted, coddled, and kept contented, let the terms be what they may. Y.M. Training. Oh, what's the use of it? Didn't I, and didn't my mother, try to train me up, to where I would no longer fly out at that girl? O.M. Have you never managed to keep back a scolding? Y.M. Oh, well, certainly, many times. O.M. More times this year than last? Y.M. Yes, a good many more. O.M. More times last year than the year before? Y.M. Yes. O.M. There is a large improvement, then, in the two years? Y.M. Yes, undoubtedly. O.M. Then your question is answered. You see, there is use in training. Keep on. Keep faithfully on. You are doing well. Y.M. Will my reform reach perfection? O.M. It will. Up to your limit. Y.M. My limit? What do you mean by that? O.M. You remember that you said that I said training was everything? I corrected you, and said training and another thing. That other thing is temperament, that is, the disposition you were born with. You can't eradicate your disposition, nor any rag of it. You can only put a pressure on it, and keep it down and quiet. You have a warm temper? Y.M. Yes. O.M. You will never get rid of it, but by watching it you can keep it down nearly all the time. Its presence is your limit. Your reform will never quite reach perfection, for your temper will beat you now and then, but you come near enough. You have made valuable progress, and can make more. There is use in training, immense use. Presently you will reach a new stage of development, then your progress will be easier, will proceed on a simpler basis, anyway. Y.M. Explain. O.M. You keep back your scoldings now to please yourself, by pleasing your mother. Presently the mere triumphing over your temper will delight your vanity, and confer a more delicious pleasure and satisfaction upon you than even the approbation of your mother confers upon you now. You will then labor for yourself directly, and at first hand, not by the roundabout way through your mother. It simplifies the matter, and it also strengthens the impulse. I am. Ah, oh, dear! But I shan't ever reach the point where I will spare the girl for her sake primarily, and not mine? Oh, am. Why, yes, in heaven. Why, am. After a reflective pause. Temperament. Well, I see one must allow for temperament. It is a large factor, sure enough. My mother is thoughtful and not hot-tempered. When I was dressed, I went to her room. She was not there. I called. She answered from the bathroom. I heard the water running. I inquired. She answered, without temper, that Jane had forgotten her bath, and she was preparing it herself. I offered to ring, but she said, No, don't do that. It would only distress her to be confronted with her lapse, and would be a rebuke. She doesn't deserve that. She is not to blame for the tricks her memory serves her. I say, has my mother an interior master? And where was he? O.M. He was there, there, and looking out for his own peace and pleasure and contentment. The girl's distress would have pained your mother. Otherwise, the girl would have been rung up, distress and all. I know women who would have gotten a number one pleasure out of ringing Jane up 
and so they would infallibly have pushed the button and obeyed the law of their make and training which are the servants of their interior masters it is quite likely that a part of your mother's forbearance came from training the good kind of training whose best and highest function is to see to it that every time it confers a satisfaction upon its pupil a benefit shall fall at second hand upon others Y.M. if you were going to condense into an admonition your plan for the general betterment of the race's condition how would you word it admonition o m diligently train your ideals upward and still upward toward a summit where you will find your chiefest pleasure in conduct which while contenting you will be sure to confer benefits upon your neighbor and the community y m is that a new gospel o m no y m it has been taught before o m for ten thousand years Y.M. By whom? O.M. All the great religions, all the great gospels. Y.M. Then there is nothing new about it. O.M. Oh, oh, yes, there is. It is candidly stated this time. That has not been done before. Y.M. How do you mean? O.M. Haven't I put you first, and your neighbor and the community afterward? Y.M. Well, yes, that is a difference, it is true. O.M the difference between straight speaking and crooked the difference between frankness and shuffling Y.M. explain o m the others offer you a hundred bribes to be good thus conceding that the master inside of you must be conciliated and contented first and that you will do nothing at first hand but for his sake then they turn square around and require you to do good for others sake chiefly and to do your duty for duty's sake chiefly and to do acts of self-sacrifice thus at the outset we all stand upon the same ground recognition of the supreme and absolute monarch that resides in man and we all grovel before him and appeal to him then those others dodge and shuffle and face around and unfrankly and inconsistently and illogically change the form of their appeal and direct its persuasions to man's second-place powers and to powers which have no existence in him thus advancing them to first place whereas in my admonition i stick logically and consistently to the original position i place the interior master's requirements first and keep them there why if we grant for the sake of argument that your scheme and the other schemes aim at and produce the same result right living has yours an advantage over the others o m one yes a large one it has no concealments no deceptions when a man leads a right and valuable life under it he is not deceived as to the real chief motive which impels him to it in those other cases he is y m is that an advantage is it an advantage to live a lofty life for a mean reason in the other cases he lives the lofty life under the impression that he is living for a lofty reason is not that an advantage o m perhaps so the same advantage he might get out of thinking himself a duke and living a duke's life and parading in ducal fuss and feathers when he wasn't a duke at all and could find it out if he would only examine the herald's records y m 
but anyway he is obliged to do a duke's part he puts his hand in his pocket and does his benevolences on a, as big a scale as he can stand and that benefits the community o.m he could do that without being a duke y.m but would he o.m don't you see where you are arriving y.m where o.m at the standpoint of the other schemes that it is good morals to let an ignorant duke do showy benevolences for his pride's sake a pretty low motive and go on doing them unwarned lest if he were made acquainted with the actual motive which prompted them he might shut up his purse and cease to be good Y.M. but isn't it best to leave him in ignorance as long as he thinks he is doing good for others sake O.M. perhaps so it is the position of the other schemes they think humbug is good enough morals when the dividend on it is good deeds and handsome conduct Y.M. it is my opinion that under your scheme of a man's doing a good deed for his own sake first off instead of first for the good deed's sake no man would ever do one O.M. have you committed a benevolence lately Y.M. yes this morning O.M. give the particulars Y.M. the cabin of the old negro woman who used to nurse me when i was a child and who saved my life once at the risk of her own was burned last night and she came mourning this morning and pleading for money to build another one O.M. you furnished it Y.M. certainly O.M. you were glad you had the money Y.M. money i hadn't i sold my horse O.M. you were glad you had the horse Y.M. Of course I was, for if I hadn't had the horse I should have been incapable, and my mother would have captured the chance to set old Sally up. O.M. You were cordially glad you were not caught out and incapable. Y.M. Oh, I just was. O.M. Now then. Y.M. Stop where you are. I know your whole catalogue of questions, and I could answer every one of them without your wasting the time to ask them, but I will summarize the whole thing in a single remark. I did the charity knowing it was because the act would give me a splendid pleasure, and because old Sally's moving gratitude and delight would give me another one, and because the reflection that she would be happy now and out of her trouble would fill me full of happiness. I did the whole thing with my eyes open and recognizing and realizing that I was looking out for my share of the profits first. Now then, I have confessed. Go on. O.M. I haven't anything to offer you have covered the whole ground could you have been any more strongly moved to help sally out of her trouble could you have done the deed any more eagerly if you had been under the delusion that you were doing it for her sake and profit only Y.M. no nothing in the world could have made the impulse which moved me more powerful more masterful more thoroughly irresistible i played the limit O.M. very well you begin to suspect and i claim to know that when a man is a shade more strongly moved to do one of two things or of two dozen things than he is to do any one of the others he will infallibly do that one thing be it good or be it evil and if it be good not all the beguilements of all the casuistries can increase the strength of the impulse by a single shade or add a shade to the comfort and contentment he will get out of the act Y.M. then you believe that such tendency toward doing good as is in men's hearts 
would not be diminished by the removal of the delusion that good deeds are done primarily for the sake of number two instead of for the sake of number one o m that is what i fully believe y m doesn't it somehow seem to take from the dignity of the deed o m if there is dignity in falsity it does it removes that y m what is left for the moralist to do o m teach unreservedly what he already teaches with one side of his mouth and takes back with the other do right for your own sake and be happy in knowing that your neighbor will certainly share in the benefits resulting y m repeat your admonition o m diligently train your ideals upward and still upward toward a summit where you will find your chiefest pleasure in conduct which while contenting you will be sure to confer benefits upon your neighbor and the community y m one's every act proceeds from exterior influences you think o m yes y m if i conclude to rob a person i am not the originator of the idea but it comes in from the outside i see him handling money for instance and that moves me to the crime o m that by itself oh certainly not it is merely the latest outside influence of a procession of preparatory influences stretching back over a period of years no single outside influence can make a man do a thing which is at war with his training the most it can do is to start his mind on a new track and open it to the reception of new influences as in the case of ignatius loyola in time these influences can train him to a point where it will be consonant with his new character to yield to the final influence and do that thing i will put the case in a form which will make my theory clear to you i think here are two ingots of virgin gold they shall represent a couple of characters which have been refined and perfected in the virtues by years of diligent right training suppose you wanted to break down these strong and well-compacted characters what influence would you bring to bear upon the ingots y m work it out yourself proceed o m suppose i turn upon one of them a steam-jet during a long succession of hours will there be a result y m none that i know of o m why y m a steam-jet cannot break down such a substance o m very well the steam is in outside influence but it is ineffective because the gold takes no interest in it the ingot remains as it was suppose we add to the steam some quicksilver in a vaporized condition and turn the jet upon the ingot will there be an instantaneous result y m no o m the quicksilver is an outside influence which gold by its peculiar nature say temperament disposition cannot be indifferent to it stirs the interest of the gold although we do not perceive it but a single application of the influence works no damage let us continue the application in a steady stream and call each minute a year by the end of ten or twenty minutes ten or twenty years the little ingot is sodden with quicksilver its virtues are gone its character is degraded at last it is ready to yield to a temptation which it would have taken no notice of ten or twenty years ago we will apply that temptation in the form of a pressure of my finger you note the result 
Y.M. Yes, the ingot has crumbled to sand. I understand now. It is not the single outside influence that does the work, but only the last one of a long and disintegrating accumulation of them. I see now how my single impulse to rob the man is not the one that makes me do it, but only the last one of a preparatory series. You might illustrate with a parable. A parable. O.M. I will. There was once a pair of New England boys, twins. They were alike in all good dispositions, feckless morals, and personal appearance. They were the models of the Sunday school. At fifteen, George had an opportunity to go as a cabin boy in a whale-ship, and sailed away for the Pacific. Henry remained at home in the village. At eighteen, George was a sailor before the mast, and Henry was teacher of the advanced Bible class. At twenty-two, George, through fighting habits and drinking habits acquired at sea, and in the sailor boarding-houses of the European and the Oriental ports, was a common rough in Hong Kong, and out of a job, and Henry was superintendent of the Sunday school. At twenty-six George was a wanderer, a tramp, and Henry was pastor of the village church. Then George came home, and was Henry's guest. One evening a man passed by and turned down the lane, and Henry said, with a pathetic smile, "'Without intending me a discomfort, that man is always keeping me reminded of my pinching poverty, for he carries heaps of money about him, and goes by here every evening of his life.' That outside influence, that remark, was enough for George, but it was not the one that made him ambush the man and rob him. It merely represented the eleven years' accumulation of such influences, and gave birth to the act for which their long gestation had made preparation. It had never entered the head of Henry to rob the man. His ingot had been subjected to clean steam only, but George's had been subjected to vaporized quicksilver. End of section 4